Hi, it's Dan here for Dutchy Just Radio, and this is a podcast liner notes revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. And today I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Gil Moore, drummer for the iconic Canadian band Triumph. Uh, Gil needs no introduction as he is an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. So to borrow a phrase from Bruce Allen, if you don't know who Gil Moore is, go back to sleep. <laughs> we'll be talking about recording, working on hit albums, the biz part of the biz, and much more as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So thanks for joining me today, Gil. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Dan. Happy to be here. Well, I appreciate it. I had to use Bruce Allen's line there because it was so apropos for uh, you. <laughs> I love Bruce. <laughs> well, you know, he had, if you ever listened to Bruce Break in Vancouver, because we he lives here, obviously, and I mean, some of the funniest lines just literally crack me up. So I always enjoy his, his Bruce Breaks. Yeah, he's a he's a he's as sharp as a razor blade, you know. I, I love Bruce, you know, and he's got so much experience and so many uh, funny anecdotes over over the years. And uh, you know, a really brilliant manager. Um, you know, he's just done a phenomenal job for all his artists. Well, that that's one thing that was uh, said about him, which is true, is that when Canadian artists go to the states, they if you don't have a, a bulldog of a manager, you get pushed around a little bit. And Bruce was one guy that they couldn't push around because he'd he'd be yelling at people on the phone and stuff, which seems a little abrasive. But you needed that to be able to survive in that marketplace. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Bruce evolved from you know what I would call the UK model of of the Don Ardens and the Peter Grants and 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 people like that that. You know, we're we're managing, you know, the big uh, artists that first broke in the 70s. And, you know, he learned from the best. And uh, you're right. Like he, you know, you had to be a bit of a, a tough guy at times um, in, in, in that era uh, to not be taken advantage of because, uh, it, the, I don't know, the, the, the music landscape in the industry, it just wasn't as... Um, it wasn't as reasonable as it's as it's become. I mean, some people mm-hmm. today may say, "What are you talking about, reasonable?" Uh, <laughs> but I, I would just say, having gone through that myself, uh, like I think, you know, just like society matures, you know, the business has matured as well. So it's uh, it's a little more uh, it's a little more civil now than than, than it was, you yes. know, uh, the, in in those days. But uh, yeah, Bruce yeah. certainly. You know, he earned his he earns his stripes uh, in, in the trenches, and uh, you know, at this point, you know, he's just one of those repositories of wisdom about the whole history of how uh, touring and and, uh, and and artists' music has evolved over over the last yeah. uh, you know number of decades. And uh, yeah, very very uh, interesting perspective on many many topics, Dan. Yeah, no, it's 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 important that you say that because uh, there's lots of sharks and barracudas out there. One guy described uh, the music business as trying to cross a river on the backs of alligators. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I thought, ooh, that's very true because it's easy to get swallowed up. But um, so you're from Toronto, like you, you're born and bred and born and raised in Toronto. And you stayed there and you you took drums and training. Did you have did you have any vocal training, drum training? What did you go through? Well, really, uh, you know, I was, um, uh, I got into drums, you know, because mainly because I failed in hockey, um, <laughs> you know, and then failed in golf. Like I wanted to be a hockey, I wanted to be in the NHL, like every other kid on my street. Yes. And, um, you know, then when I was about 13, I decided I wanted to be a golf pro and that lasted for a little while. And then I got interested in drums right at the same time, but I found I was a lot better at drums and um, really never had any formal training, but I had some, I had some great, uh, you know, uh, mentor sessions, you know, probably the, 
the best one I ever had was from Skip Prokop from Lighthouse. And, you know, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and, and showed me some, some magic, um, cool. some, some of his secret sauce that really, really helped me. Um, yeah. you know, and I, and, and Lou Williamson actually, the uh, one time, uh, drum manager at Long and McQuaid, who was, he, he really, uh, was very kind with sharing his knowledge with me as well that, uh, you know, we just like most musicians at the time, you know, you're um, there weren't the access to music education or music teachers that we have today. And so in a lot of ways, you just kind of had to dig it out of the dirt. And, you know, it, it came down to getting those getting those free sort of uh, tips when you could from pros. And uh, I guess just listening to records, which I did in my in my parents basement. And fortunately, my mom and dad were really generous with uh, their noise rules, and I was able, to, <laughs> I was able to practice uh, until 8:30 p.m. every evening. Uh, and they would go to the far end of the house, turn the TV up to you know 11, and uh, close the door. And 8:30 would roll around, and we would have had drums rolling from after school. So say you know four, probably four o'clock or 3:45, they would have had drums rolling for four and a half hours at that point. Oh yeah. Other wow. than a dinner break. And uh, they would say, yeah. okay, enough's enough. And uh, 8.30, no more drums. Well, that was my training. <laughs> well, very cool. I mean, it's it, and it's funny that you mentioned the hockey thing too, because the coaches can coach you, but they can't score the goals for you, right? So you have to just be able to play. Can you play? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the same thing applies. What I said about music education applies to hockey too. I mean, the hockey players now are so much better. And mm-hmm. so much of it is the training. I mean, it's it's... They're trained better physically, but also I think the, the with the, with the use of video, video has helped. Uh, you know, drummers, golfers, uh, hockey players, uh, every uh, athletic endeavor. Uh, I, I think has really, really been uh, you, you know accelerated by the use of uh, video and being able to ana- analyze data as well. So we're just in a whole different world now. Uh, you know, than than the good old seventies and eighties when. Um, <laughs> The musicians didn't have those tools, uh, you know, nor did the athletes really. Yeah, no, good point. And then that's the other thing that struck me about, you know, the way you play, like drumming, music is one thing, but drumming the way you play is a very physical experience, right? And I know I talked to my buddy, Mark LaFrance, he's playing with Randy Bachman now, but he said he works out all the time and he's very aware of the physical aspect of it too. And that's something that, you know, guitar players, as I am, don't really think about that as much, right? Yeah, drums is very physical, and uh, I remember uh, Lloyd Percival, who was one of Canada's foremost fitness experts, he published a chart once on uh, cardiovascular, and it was about comparing different sports and, and you know, which sport produced the most, uh, I, I guess, uh, the effort required by the athlete would probably be a, mm. a, a kind of a basket way of saying of this whole a bunch of data that he had analyzed. But, but strangely enough, he found that a, uh, what he defined as a rock and roll singer was, uh, very, was I forget, was in the top three. Uh, oh, wow. And drummer was also in the top three. So <laughs> I thought that was funny because I thought, yeah, so the worst job of all is a singing drummer in a power trio. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Well, that's right. Because you got to control your breathing and you have to, you know, be able to do the physical part of it. Right. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I just always looked at it as, uh, you know, we would warm up in the dressing room like a sports team, I guess. 
Um, you know, I would do a lot of deep breathing, you know, inhale eucalyptus uh, to try to get the vocal cords, uh, you know, uh, sounding, uh, at, uh, get them to optimal condition, I'll say. Um, and then, you know, loosen up the wrists, you know, just with, you know, drumming on, on, uh, my knee or on a pillow or something like that. And we do a vocal warm up with the whole band, uh, in the dressing room, just acapella. Hmm. So by the time we rolled out on stage, it was kind of like, okay, it's the game on, you know? Yeah. I know that's kind of weird for, um, maybe musicians who are playing in five piece, six piece bands, but the whole power trio concept, unless you've done it and unless you've yeah. played what I'll call high energy music, you know, if you listen to something, uh, you know, like, you know, one of the classics, uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, and, uh, mm -hmm. maybe the are you experienced album, um, you know, and you, you listen to some of the high energy tracks, uh, that they play, you know, like fire or manic depression or, you know, yeah. some of those ones that really require the drummer to really kind of, um, spread his wings, I'll say across the whole kit in a very, very yeah. intense way. And then if you add vocals to that, then you, you kind of get the idea. I'm, I mean, Rick sang a little bit more than, than I did. I would, I would say we kind of split the vocals 60, 40. So he yeah. carried, he carried a larger, uh, weight than I did in terms of, uh, in terms of vocals, but, I know it was very difficult for him too, because he's a very physical guitar player. He, he, yeah. it's not like he was standing in one, one position and just at the microphone, like, like he was yeah, fair enough. You know, play, playing in, in many bands where that's all the guitar player does. I mean, he was dominating yeah. the stage with Mike Levine and, you know, it's yeah, pretty for sure. physical for, for those guys as well. Yeah. And of course it's an exciting time in the sixties and seventies, you know, chasing the rock star dream. I mean, every, every kid, practically in the neighborhood wanted to be in a band and and who put the stars in your eyes like like who were your people that you looked to and thought yeah i want to do that you know it's it was a kind of a series of steps i mean the first time i ever saw a live rock band i was just enthralled with it you know and i was about 11 years old and i was at the cedar crescent casino in port elgin and um my buddy brad and i were you know probably too young to be there although i i don't think <laughs> they served liquor and uh but we were just kind of these little kids and we were in there and we got up close to the stage and the first time i saw you know a set of drums and and you know heard the bing bang boom and 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 so on i yeah. was just kind of wow this is yeah, something cool. this instrument man drums wow i've yeah. never heard these things they sound like uh i don't know they just sound so unbridled and so dynamic they just it's just like an instant kind of hook but of course, yeah. then the whole thing is how many lawns can I mow to save enough money to get my hands on some drums? And that was a that was a big process. I mean, yeah. the first drum set I got was was about 280 bucks. And yeah. it took a long time to save up, you know, that money. Yes. And then once my dad could see that I was uh, you know, I was starting to actually take it seriously, he he co-signed for uh, a loan at Long and McQuaid, which was about 560 or $70 mm. a professional set. And that was, that was, I just felt like I, I, I don't know, somebody just given me, uh, I, I don't know, I can't put yeah. it in perspective. When I got that first pro set of drums, I just thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> those are fun that's days cool. to look back on Dan. well they are because that's that's part of your whole life experience right i mean as as the psychologist would say you know you're a collection of your experiences and those mm -hmm. experiences are really important yeah i i agree and and you know i guess it 
it's now like, you know, I'm working with a lot of young people now through our school at Metalworks and, uh, you know, a lot of young artists I talk to, uh, you know, through our studios as well about, you know, their aspirations and stuff. And, you know, you try to give good advice and, and some of the, uh, you know, we were talking about Bruce Allen earlier and like what he went through, uh, you know, as a manager and a similar, uh, you know, Bruce is older than I am, but similar era. Uh, you know, what I went through as a musician and some of that knowledge you can pass forward. Other bits and pieces of it aren't relevant anymore. Uh, you know, everything that went on pre-internet, you can imagine, is uh, significantly different uh, than yeah. what's going on since then. And of course, as we talked about the uh, the media that's available, all the video and uh, basically yes. just intel yeah. on how stuff works and how you do things and uh, it's just a, such a different world now, but yeah. a lot of the fundamentals I find, which is, you know, hard work as old fashioned, as crazy as it sounds, just, just, just kind of outwork the competition and, uh, yeah. you know, try, you know, the three ups, you know, uh, and try to, you know, keep your word and, and build those relationships. Like I know with, with triumph, a lot of the relationships that we built, I mean, they, uh, they stayed with us for decades because of, because of loyalty and because of, you know, trying to shoot straight all the time. Yeah. yeah I, I agree with that. And still 100%. negotiate your position in, in business deals and so on. So yeah. those are the things I think are really the keys to success, you know, and really those are things yeah. I just learned from my father. Yeah. No, I, that's, it's a good word. And the other thing, one of the best pieces of advice I got from somebody was, you know, despite all the stress and you're tired and everything else, try to enjoy it as much as you can, because one day soon you're going to be looking back on it. That's a really good point. And, uh, you know, we just finished, uh, you know, a documentary last year on triumph. And when I watched the documentary myself, that banger films made, and we start telling the stories of the growth of the band and, you know, starting right from, you know, before we had our first record where we're just playing in Joe's bar. And then when we got our first record and we got our first record was on the radio. You're absolutely right. I mean, we did enjoy it. I will say this. One thing about about Triumph is, um, you know, for a straight, you know, almost 15 year run, uh, it was pretty much just straight positive and and high energy the, the whole way. And a big reason for that was humor. Like, we yeah. would we would realize that you were going to have the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, no, you, there's no way to avoid them, whether it's weather, whether it's delays, whether it's, yeah. you know, all sorts of things that happen to you on the road, you know. But if you show up at a hotel and the room's not ready and you get angry about that, I mean, you're going to have a bad time if you're a touring musician. You just have to roll with the punches. So our way of doing that was 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 humor, was joking around. We fooled around with all kinds of crazy stuff backstage and, and, you know, you know, when we were eating together and on airplanes, uh, I think sometimes stewardesses would, would see us and and, and think, gee, what are these guys laughing about? They must be three comedians, (laughs) but no, we were three musicians. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, it's, it sounds like you, you lived that and it's important because I, like, I'm not a passive person and I've always been the guy that's trying to look after everything and I become a bit of a stress cadet. And then what I've realized and what I've learned looking back is sometimes instead of making the situation better, you're actually making it worse to your point. Oh, for sure. For sure. I'm guilty of that. I mean, that's why, I mean, everything, you know, is not going to go perfect and especially in a touring environment. And, you know, I've got, I've got a, you know, saying that in, in metalworks here, which I repeat often, which is, you know, people make mistakes and equipment breaks. 
And those yeah. are just two realities of, of uh, being in the music field. And uh, But you have to say to yourself uh, how lucky we are to be in, in the music field. And uh, a quote that I thought was pretty funny uh, in that regard was uh, Mickey Dolan's from the Monkees uh, on a TV show once. They, they said, you know, well, you know, why did you become a musician? And his first answer was it made it easier to meet girls. And then they pressed him, no, 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 what's the real reason? And he says, it beats packing boxes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So no, I agree with him on that. It, made, it did yeah. make it easier to meet girls and it beat packing boxes. So Yes. Well, great. you know, the attitude of gratitude is, is important. And that's what I've thought as I've gotten older, I'm even more thankful for everything I've been able to do and experience and whatnot. So. Yeah, well, I uh, I certainly feel a huge debt of gratitude to uh, to our fans because they've been unbelievably loyal. Like to this day, I mean, things that you know show up here at, at Metalworks Studios that are you know completely out of the blue, and uh, the reaction to the to the documentary this year, and uh, uh, just I, I don't know, just the, the people you meet in the in, in Tim Hortons, it just it yeah, just never stops. Cool. This, this outpouring of uh, uh, wonderful commentary. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I mean, we don't get kind of like some of the modern artists, you know, they kind of get trolled and trash talked and stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe it's because of, uh, you know, the, the era and our fans now are a little older, but we just don't get that. We don't, yeah. we don't get trash talked or trolled on the internet or anything like that. It's all kind of genuine and, and, uh, heartfelt and it just increases the amount of gratitude that you know i know i feel and i can speak for mike and rick that we feel towards those fans and also some of the business guys that you know the you know back to the bruce allen's of this world the guys ray daniels rush's manager is very you know helpful to us um in, in the beginning the, the u.s concert promoters who have you know gone on to be the, the the guys running you know live nation and 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 so on like some of these people were were great allies of triumph in terms of breaking us in all those uh, markets across the United States and, and throughout Canada. So a lot of great relationships that uh, go back through our career to reflect on. Yeah, you know, good for you. And that, 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 like, again, that's the humanity part of it really transcends the music part of it in that sense as well. Right. Yeah, it really does. I mean, when I go back and, and, and I, and I look at it, uh, and I think, okay, what were the chances that we were going to go anywhere? Um, chances were like less than 1%. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 99.999% of recording artists flop. Like the, yeah. the, the, the ones that get lucky enough to actually build a fan base and, uh, and, and sell concert tickets and get gold records. I mean, you've got to consider yourself blessed. And anybody that doesn't get that, I just say to them, hey, look, uh, if, if John, if John and Paul didn't go to the same, uh, you know, art school in London and they hadn't met, there would have been no Beatles. And Absolutely. you have to ask yourself, like how successful would, you know, George Harrison and, and Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and John Lennon be if that, if that never happened, I mean, would they be you know, have been floundering in bar bands or would one of them, you know, somehow have made it with a different combination. And you can say that about any group, like yeah. take the members of Led Zeppelin and go back into the Yardbirds and pull them all apart. You go, well, yeah, okay. So, you know, Eric Clapton was a great guitar player or, you know, Jimmy Page was a great guitar player or whatever. But without 
Robert Plant, where would Jimmy Page be, you know, or without yeah. John Paul Jones and, and Bonzo and so on. So I think a lot of that is just, uh, you, you know, you're, you've got to be you've got to be somewhat lucky uh, in music to meet the right people, whether they're musicians, collaborators, producers, you know, concert promoters, the whole thing. You have to catch a few breaks. And yeah. if you are lucky enough that that happens and you are lucky enough to be successful, don't forget about that. 99% failure rate because you are darn lucky. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. Cause I often ask when, when I interview people ask them, well, how much of it was planned and how much of it was happenstance. And it's, it's usually some form of combination of those things, right? Yeah. We get credited for it being all a plan. And I, I think it's because, um, Mike and I, when we, when we started, we did have a plan. Now that doesn't mean it's going to work. All it mm -hmm. means is we had an idea and the idea was pretty straightforward. It was just the number one idea was we wanted a three-piece band because we both played in bands with a lot of musicians. So the power trio was a concept from the outset. And then okay. finding Rick, which wasn't easy, was uh, also uh, a, by design. Like we, we were looking for a certain type of guitarist that also had to be a vocalist and, you know, very, very uh, lucky uh, that, we, that we found Rick. And, yeah. uh, you know, I just say the same thing about Triumph. If you took any one of us out of the group, like Mike was a, he was a qualified record producer when we started. If we didn't have Mike, I don't know how we would have done in the studio. Maybe our first mm. record would have just been horrible and nobody would have played it. It's, you can't undo these things. You just have to look back and say, well, it happened. And yeah, I guess some of it was planned, but to your point, Dan, I think, uh, happenstance and the way the ball bounces uh, plays into it a lot as well. Yeah. One thing, one thing that struck me about you is that you're always thinking big, you know, you want to blow people away and then, and then it's funny because you talk about the pyro stuff and, you know, I had a band on, on the West coast and of course back then in the late seventies and the eighties and stuff, we used pyro all the time. We didn't even know what we were doing. We had two nails with a filament across and we'd have a momentary switch and we'd, you know, we had a sound, a light guy that had a, a, pocket full of uh the, you know the the powder right the uh, flash powder and then the, the he had flash powder in one pocket and gunpowder in the other pocket and stuff stumbling around one time he was drunk and he had a little eaves trough full of <laughs> gunpowder and stuff like we could never get away with that but when i saw that great white thing where they had the fire and stuff well we did stuff like that lots back then did you guys get away with a bunch of stuff that you'd never get away with now yeah and and uh you know it's it's funny it it when I look back on it and especially now, you know, just with, with Metalworks, you know, having an audio visual company or division to our uh, company and all the safety requirements, which, oh, yeah. you know, when I'm, when I'm in meetings with the guys and they're talking about egress and they're talking about, uh, you know, uh, safety margin here, safety margin there, engineer drawings here, engineer drawings there. Uh, Pyro itself, for example, is all licensed now and it, it's kind of like it's kind of like looking back into the dark ages and you say yeah. okay well in a construction site now everybody wears hard hats but at one time no one wore hard hats you know yeah. now everybody's got a fluorescent x on their back at one time no one did and it, you know hockey players didn't wear helmets and they got their teeth knocked out you know it, yeah. it's the same yeah. same principle so yeah we were we were kids you know didn't really know what we were we didn't see anything yeah. wrong with with pyro or, you know, there was no uh, even thought process around uh, safety regulations. I mean, we, we, we tried to 
you know, to not, you know, ruin things. But yeah, we, we burned ourselves. We burned the few stages and fortunately we, no one was ever seriously injured, but it was, it was pretty wild. It's pretty wild stuff. It would never happen today. It was just, that was an era that was. And since then, uh, you know, the good news is, uh, you know, uh, stages are safer now, you know, the, yeah. because of some of the accidents they've had with wind. So they understand having weather monitors and having ballast on, on outdoor stages. And, you know, pyro has to be licensed and, you know, your uh, overhead, uh, you know, trusses and, and, and things that are flown have to be on uh, rated uh, rigging points. And they've, they've really, the, the industry's really uh, matured. It's a lot safer than it was yeah. back then. And, uh, you know, I think the greatest risk, back then was just, you know, somebody getting carried away and hurling a whiskey bottle at the band or something. And that one hasn't changed, you know, that can still happen. So, yeah, no, you make a good point though. It is, it, it was the wild West back then and we had our fun, but it's safer now and it's better now. Yeah. Much better for the fans. And I, I guess now, you know, some of the big accidents uh, that they're having, uh, they're more, they're more, they're well publicized now. So, you know, the Travis Scott, um, you know, uh, uh, accident, that big one that happened, uh, recently, you know, there was so much publicity on that, that you look at it and you go, now you've got insurance companies and regulators and the government and, you know, uh, all these people, you know, crawling all over that accident and saying, okay, how did it happen? Why did it happen? How can we prevent it? So, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that concerts get safer and safer and safer over time, Uh, be, because they have the, you know, the Intel now and they have the, the systems and, and people that are looking into these things and that it doesn't get sort of swept under the rug. No, it's a good point. And, and you mentioned the documentary and, and I watched the documentary from 1982, the, the what's new documentary that mm-hmm. had been put out back when you guys were in your prime. And again, you know, when you talk about the difference between being what was planned and what has happened, stands, you, you guys came across well, like, like, like you're young guys, but you, you were focused and you had a plan and you'd already had some success, some, some serious success by then, by 1982. And you just came across different than, than the typical sort of rockers. I think the difference might've been Dan is, you know, again, our, our, our approach to touring it was it was more like a sports team because in the power trio environment, I mean, if if we were all you know drugs and debauchery, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to perform. It just wouldn't have happened, you know. Yeah. And you know maybe that's why we're all alive too. So <laughs> uh, the, the the thing was we were just so excited about what we were doing, like we were you know, you know, holy smokes, you know, we're going to sell out the big arena in Indianapolis tonight. Isn't that unbelievable? You know? And it yeah. was like, so there was that excitement that was happening or, you know, oh, we're going to be in Dallas, you know, in, in two weeks. And, you know, uh, you know, we're going to have this huge crowd or, you know, like some of the big outdoor stuff we did, like playing Texas world music festivals. You know, I remember one weekend we played back to back the Astrodome, and uh, the Cotton Bowl, you know, so 80,000 people a day, you know, and stuff yeah, like that. Cool. That just, you kind of look at that and you go, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, we're playing for 160,000 people in Dallas and Houston, <laughs> you know. And and so yeah. as a kid, you know, because I mean, we were young men at that point, but, you know, yeah. kind of a, a kind of kids. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty heady stuff. Yeah. 
So, but I watched the rock and roll machine documentary, obviously everybody, all the musicians and stuff were, were anticipating that coming out. And of course we all watched it right away and loved it. But again, you guys come across really well. Like you're not, you're not the rock stars, you know, that live because some rock stars live in an alternate reality. You know, you guys seem very clean cut and clear headed and like a giant boy scout trip. And I guess there were some pitfalls and stuff, but you, you managed to avoid most of them. It looks like. I think Dan, you're, you're kind of a product of your environment, you know, so, you know, where I grew up here, uh, I live very close to where, um, you know, I spent my childhood. I, I, I'm only now, you know, within a five kilometer range of the neighborhood I grew up in. And, uh, mm. you know, we, we like I said, we, we, we grew up in, uh, you know, a, a sports loving environment. You know, I played baseball, football, um, you know, hockey. I mean, there was ball hockey. I mean, you name it. It was just constant sports. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty good environment. So I think by the time I got into music, um, you know, my 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 parents had set a good example, and uh, and same thing for Mike and Mike and Rick. They had great folks, and uh, yeah. you know, I think our Canadians we have a little bit of a uh, I don't know um, we got we've got a work ethic that I think is particular, uh, you know, to our northern climate and our our the neighborhoods we grow up in and the. Uh, and the environment here in the GTA and so on. And uh, it, it kind of st- stood us in, in, in good stead. Like we, the, the, the business never got the better of us, never really overwhelmed us. Um, you know, when we, when we finally reached the stage where we, where we split, uh, when Rick had wanted to, you know, kind of go solo and stuff. Yeah, we, we had, we had a, a low point there because we had a record producer that was uh, the first I don't know, person we'd ever work with as a producer that just managed to alienate the band. And mm, uh, yeah. so that was, a, that was a, but it was a brief period, you know, it was a brief, it yeah. was a brief period. So uh, yeah, nothing's perfect yeah. in, in, in yeah, of course. life. So, and so uh, yeah. we, we were, we were really blessed that we uh, had the, you know, the, the ongoing good times that we had. And, and like I said, that we were able to keep it light with humor and realize that, you know, if we want to play, you know, shows back to back to back the way we, the way we did at that energy level that, you know, you better get some sleep. <laughs> you better. Re- well, I like the sports. Re- I like the sports too. analogy. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I like the sports analogy because that's right. I, in my 40 years of being a professional entertainer, I always looked at it like being an athlete. I consider it the same thing. Mm-hmm. No, we, we went out on stage. Like I was like that last thing I was doing was, you know, uh, like I said, the eucalyptus to try to improve my vocal. And then I always had an oxygen tank. So I'd take a couple of blasts of pure oxygen. Oh, cool. And, you know, so by the time I was going on the stage, I was trying to feel like, okay, I'm ready. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the wrestlers come out in the flames and, WWE <laughs> yeah. and they go, raw, I'm here. I don't know. That's what yeah. I was. I was trying to feel all that energy, you know? Yeah. And the last yeah, thing I would do in the evening um, before the show, like I would take a nap, uh, you know, usually around six thirty or seven o'clock or something. And before I go over to the arena, I go in like a hot shower with a lot of steam and then yeah. boom, I'd, I'd only get to the arena, like maybe an hour before we went on stage. And then we'd go through that ritual in the dressing room. So by the yeah. time we hit the stage, I was like, I was like feeling like ready to run the hundred yard dash and ready to yeah, okay. some iron and, you know, that's yeah. how I wanted yeah. to feel. 
Well, a good, a good for you. And a friend of mine played uh, uh, football at University of Winnipeg, and he said before they went out in the field, I mean, they'd be smashing their heads into lockers and blowing snot bubbles and just ready to rip somebody's head off. But he said if you weren't jacked up to that point by the time you hit the field, it, it's over before it starts. Yeah, yeah. With, with Triumph, I mean, you know, we'd run that intro tape, and you yeah. could just feel the, uh, you know, the pulse of everybody uh, in the venue uh, starting to kind of pump with that intro cool. tape. So we knew, you know, when the lights went up and, and uh, you know, downbeat started, uh, yeah. you just had to feel like, you know, your engines were, were, were roaring right from, right from the get-go. Yeah, very cool. So in watching the video and watching the rock and roll machine, I had a few takeaways from that. And I wanted to ask you about a few of those and just make some, have you make some comments on it, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing that really struck me is I developed a much deeper appreciation for Mike's contribution. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a guitar player, so Rick Emmett's one of my heroes and your singing is great and your drumming is great. And, and the bass is there but it doesn't tend to be as prominent and then when i watched that video i thought you know great bass player keyboards he's back vocals he's doing the business part he's producing like pretty impressive guy and it really came out in a way that i don't think probably has had enough um you know has been advertised enough or or exposed enough let's say well interestingly enough you know in the bands before triumph like we'd always joke that mike's been we used to joke about the names of our bands because they were so bad so we would tease Rick mercilessly. He had one called General Mud. So we used to really talk about General Mud a lot. And I had a band called uh, Mondo Plus Four. So I used to get the Mondo Plus Four jokes. But but Mike's bands were a little more um, successful, uh, you know, when he was when he was a teenager uh, than Rick and I were. So and and Mike had had that experience in the studio that Rick and I had not have. So and you know he started a few years before we did, and uh, yeah, Mike Mike doesn't get enough credit. I mean he, when I go back to that first album or or, or the second or the third album for that matter, it's like Mike Levine in the studio. Even if we were working with which we were, we were working with great engineers or we were working with co-producers, but it was Mike really kind of steering the. The the, yeah. the the music from from then you don't you, you, you don't see that i mean that's stuff no. that happened behind the scenes you know and then as far as you know with our our uh, the, the decisions that you have to make uh all bands do uh all the way along our, our career um you know uh, rick rick never you really took much of an interest in the business side um you know he stayed mostly on the artistic side but uh, but Mike and I both took an interest in the business. So uh, I, I think we were good foils for each other. We, we used to have we used to have a joke when we would get stuck on one thing. We'd be talking, wouldn't matter what the decision was, but some business decision we had to make that was going to be important for the band. If we got stuck, we'd look at each other and one person would say, well, what would Led Zeppelin do? Which just became mm. a joke. You know, yeah. <laughs> what, what would Led Zeppelin do is the, is the anecdote for every dilemma that a band faces, you know? And uh, so again, you know, humor factored into it, but, but truly we were sounding boards for each other on business decisions. And I, I, uh, I credit Mike with, uh, he had a lot of experience before Triumph started and uh, yeah, we, we, we ham and egged it pretty good, I think. Well, no, that's good. And that, that's the other thing that struck me because in, in all the people that I've interviewed, 
almost to a person, because I ask him, what would you do differently and stuff? And almost to a person, they say, well, I would have looked after the business better. I would have been more interested in seeing what our career was doing. We were, we were taking the ride, but we didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes while we were taking that ride. And you guys seem to be set apart in that respect, too. Yeah, I think I think we did a pretty good job on on the management side. I mean, I I really feel like this concept of the indie band that came along years later, like I really felt that when people were saying, well, Arcade Fire was the first Canadian indie band to actually break through. And I thought, wait a sec, weren't we an indie band (laughs) a few years earlier? But um, I guess the only reason I'm saying that is because, uh, you know, originally we had managers for a very short period of time. And then, you know, we, we, we broke up with them and we went out on our own. And maybe it was that, you know, we, we, we should have met up with, uh, go back to Bruce Allen. We should have met him a lot earlier. <laughs> maybe, maybe it would have been great if we had, you know, the manager. But uh, it, it's hard to go back in time. And uh, as it turned out, we, it just seemed like one year would lead to another, would lead to another. And we were approached by some, some really, uh, you know, top level managers but there was, we had a certain sort of uh, resistance to wanting to give up control because we felt like right now we call our own shots. And if yeah. we get, uh, I mean, at one point, Tommy Matola was just chasing us so hard to manage us. And this was before he became president of Sony. But, uh, you know, he had, before Mariah Carey, but a really big acts and a really powerful company called Champion Entertainment. But, and Tommy's a great guy, but we were, we were like, Okay, if we if we do a deal with 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 Tommy, it's going to be what Tommy wants, not what Mike and, and Gil and right. Rick want. And, yeah. and I think we were afraid of that. So we've done it for so long on our own. And every year that we did it and we got more successful and more successful, we were like, well, we know what we're doing. Like, why do we need anybody right. else to do this for us? And were we right? Were we wrong? You know, would have things been better? Would have things been worse? We'll never know. Well, maintaining control of your own life. I mean, that's the one thing that I, that I never wanted to do was, was have somebody sort of own me. I don't want to be somebody's boy, so to speak. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. that's, you're my, you're going here, you're going there. Like, like some of my buddies in recording acts, it's a giant boy scout trip. You're on and off the bus. You don't know what's going on. You have no clue what the, the business is. You just play this place. You're playing a club one night, you're opening for some band the next night. And really you're clueless about everything else. So being, having some knowledge of what your business is. I don't think that could ever be a regret. No, I I actually really enjoyed it because uh, I was always I always want to learn things. I'm still like that today. I'm always trying to learn something new. So you know, I'm, I'm I've always got more projects on the go than probably I should have, but it's just because I've I've got a you know kind of a lifelong desire to just learn learn new things and yeah. kind of keep progressing in different ways. And in those days it was kind of the same thing. Like I loved learning about music publishing. I loved learning about how concerts, how ticket sales work and, and, you know, love looking at how venue, big venues work backstage and, you know, all of that stuff aside from the sound and lighting, which I really loved was all very fascinating to me. And, and, you know, to some degree still is, I love, I love the business. I think it's, it's an exciting business and it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, the more knowledge you have, the more power you have to uh, hopefully make some good decisions. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And I've often said too, 
my greatest trait, I guess, and, and most people's is curiosity. Just be curious about stuff, you know, ask questions. Hey, how does this work? Who's looking after the business? What, what's involved? Because you say in the documentary that Rick was writing the tunes and you and Mike went to New York and looked after some business deals and stuff. So you were obviously an integral part of that process, which speaks well of you. I, I was impressed by that. Well, we we had a we had a good thing uh, a good thing going in terms of how the the three of us worked with each other and uh, yeah no no regrets there um, but it was it was a lot of work Dan it was a lot of you yeah. know we would come back after playing you know three or four shows on a week and come back to Toronto and you know business would start Monday morning it wouldn't wait yeah, right. you know so it was it yeah. was a it was a real full time gig I can tell you that yeah. And then the other thing that came out in the, in the documentary that really struck me was Rick was talking about when he was leaving and he said he looked ahead and he, he just saw more of the same, like the pressure, another album, another tour, trying to do your best, you know, trying to best your best, which you basically had done and uh, just couldn't see a way to, to fulfill his life maybe in the way that he wanted to with that pattern being repeated for the next decade, let's say. Yeah, I think the, you know, the experience with, uh, with Ron Nevison, the producer, you know, was a negative one. And it tended to, I think, kind of quash in a way our creativity. Um, and, and the, um, I think the best music that we produced was when we spent time kind of jamming on the floor and exploring ideas that, uh, started, you know, from the, from the band rather than from outside writers. I mean, yeah, we were proficient musicians, so we could certainly, uh, you know, play, you know, songs that were written by other people, but they just didn't sound like triumph. And mm. there was a, there was kind of a funny thing in the business at that point in time. And all the, all the record companies seemed to be kind of pushing that idea. I know that Aerosmith got pushed the same way and, um, you know, using outside writers and, uh, when I listen to, I love Aerosmith, so I listen to their songs and I go, well, you know, the ones I like aren't the ones that came from outside writers, you know, right. or, you know, if I look at a band like ZZ Top, which is my favorite band, I go, okay, well, the songs I, I like, I mean, you know, Billy and Dusty and Frank, I mean, they were the, yeah. they were the engine room, they were the chefs, they were the whole thing, they, they served the meal. So, yeah. you know, I, I just think that that was something that, probably i think was in the back of not only rick's mind but mike's and mine we were like we should have even pushed back harder on on the notion that we needed somebody to help us write songs yeah yeah that's right because you're looking for the magic and you'd already found that magic you had the right formula for success you had the right people in place it it was working so so i guess then at some point you go well where where do we go from here well bring in some outside songs bring in outside producer you're like yeah no Really? Yeah, and the and the and the uh, whole notion behind that, I look at it like kind of killing the goose that lays the golden egg because it, it's like okay, the band's already successful, we're already got you know you know lots of fans, we sell tons of tickets, sell tons of records. So why are you pushing so hard to try to sell even more? Yeah, you know, let it happen organically. Like if I could go back and be my own best friend or my own manager, I would have just said to the the three of us, I would say, don't listen to anybody. Like, just keep doing what you're doing, you know, and it's, but, yeah. it, it, you know, you're, you, you may get, you may get a little bit bigger, you may not get bigger, you may get a little smaller, whatever, or write some bad records or, you know, have some bad <laughs> ideas, you might lose some fans, but 
you know, you, it's not a formula. I mean, you just got to make it's art. You just got to keep making your music and doing your best with it and uh, putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, every album's not going to be perfect, but thinking that you can somehow bring somebody else into the, into the kitchen, that's going to somehow blow everything up and be twice as big, I think is a false, uh, yeah, it's a false notion. And I think that most of the artists right to this day that are, that are doing great music and stuff. A lot of it is coming. Um, it's coming right from them. There are artists that just rely on songwriters from day one. And that's a whole different, uh, yeah. that's a whole different, you know, sort of, sort of platform I'll say for an artist than, you know, a, a three piece hard rock power trio, you know, writing their own music. Uh, that's a totally, uh, different thing. I, I, I will grant you there are great songwriters and there are a lot of artists who, don't write and they just uh you know rely on the publishers and those writers and nothing wrong with that but i just don't think that was you know that wasn't triumphs uh that wasn't triumphs role that's for sure well no that's a good point because in in those days and, and i went through that to to some measure myself you just get a bunch of guys together you try to get the right formula you put some songs together and there's some magic that's created that that's the old rock band i mean that's not a manufactured studio band or bring some songs in and, and let's manufacture some songs here. It's completely different than that. It's, it's your buddies yep. playing some cool tunes with this magical combination. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So the other thing that struck me is one thing that really touched me in the, in the documentary was when the lady was talking about the positive lyrics and how much it affected her life. She said how much it meant to her personally. And, and I thought, cause, cause life transcends music, right? I mean, the music is cool and everything and all the accolades, but people are human beings and they're living their life experience. And if you can, you know, have an effect on that, especially a positive effect. And, and she really brought that out and it really touched me anyway. So I don't know what you thought of that. Well, you know, the, the impact of the band's lyrics uh, in the, and I'll call it the positive vein of a lot of the lyrics or the inspirational vein of a lot of the lyrics in when they first happen, you don't realize it. It's, it's looking back. It's that uh, hindsight where you see it and uh and and how you see it is because of not because the design things that way as much as that's how it turned out that's what the fans are telling you hmm. and then when you look at it through the lens of a fan you go oh okay i get it but yeah. uh as it's going along i think you're just kind of doing what you're doing but you know if i you know pick a song like follow your heart where i i, I wrote those lyrics i, I wasn't yeah. sitting there thinking i've got to write these positive lyrics that are going to inspire people to follow your heart it was just oh i don't know it was an idea and then you know from the idea of the chorus line or whatever the lyrics in the verse flow or vice versa but when you stack it up at the end of the day and you've got songs like never surrender and fight the good fight and you know yeah. uh, and, you, and you stack the, sort of the body of work and you say hey you know there's a lot of songs that have a positive message and i thought yeah, I guess you're right, but it's it's, it's uh, it, it takes time for that to build up, and then when you really get the sense of it is when you get those fan emails, um, you know, and letters that 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 we still get that are life stories, and you know they yeah. how you know this song was, uh, you know, I mean Matt Hoffman that was in the movie, you know, he talked about he's got fight the good fight tattooed on his forearm, and when he went through yeah. his cancer operation. He said, you know, he went into the he went in the subway every single day looking at the tattoo and listening to that song as yeah. he was going through that. And you hear something like that, it, it's 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 just breaks your heart. The 
the, yeah. the, the sentiment, sentimental quality of, of that and uh, makes you realize, gee whiz, there's no possibility that we could have, uh, you know, thought that uh, of outcomes like that when we were in, in our warehouse and we're jamming out the riff and trying to figure out, you know, how to construct the song. Yeah. It just, but it's a great outcome. Well, fair point, but the lyrics do reflect your inner sort of view of things, right? And it, it, if you have a positive view or a humorous view and, and connect, connect all those things together and then the lyrics that come out are going to reflect that. So you, I would say you have to give it that in, in, in that respect, even though if it wasn't purposeful trying to write, um, I don't know, positive thinking lyrics, they came out that way as a reflection of the way you look at things. Yeah, I guess I'm just saying that you have to look through the lens of time. Uh, yeah. And and that's where you really see if there's some depth or some meaning or, you yeah. know, what sort of, uh, uh, you know, who, 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 this, who does this message resonate with and why? Yeah. Well, cool. So the, the other thing that struck me from the, of course, the US Festival, I mean, you, you guys wanted to be big and you're always thinking big and being opportunists. And then, and then you ended up playing at the US Festival, which must have been the... Yeah, I mean, that must be your biggest gig that you ever did. Is that? Oh, accurate? yeah. I think any of the bands that played on there, like Judas Priest and Van Halen and Ozzy and all, I think it's the biggest gig any of those bands played. Yeah. I mean, that was, you guys really made Canada proud that day. I was really good. Like when you're going in the helicopter shots and you're talking about, holy cow, what is this? This is like monstrous. And uh, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, the sound is really good. Did you get a separate feed? that you could mix later like a separate mix feed for the video oh yeah like it was all it was all uh recorded by uh, a gentleman named steve sterling okay. um sterling sound in los angeles and it was a full remote truck with you know the top end Perfect. equipment and everything so yeah it was it was really well done okay that that makes sense because i i knew it wasn't off the, the main console like i could tell that it was it sounded too good for that yeah it sure did and uh, you guys were pretty much flawless that day. I mean, you guys were right at the top of your game. And, and I was wondering about like the turnovers, you know, when you do multiple bands on those stages and stuff, like how much turnover time they almost always run it too tight. And then did you have your complete setup and everything, or was it a bit uncomfortable in some spots? It was uncomfortable for me uh, because we played the Tangerine Bowl uh, the day before in Orlando. Oh. So, um, we had our, our gear at the T-Bowl, couldn't get it to L.A. in time, so I had to use rental drums, which okay. the last thing in the world you want to do is use rental drums on a, on a really big gig. When I think back on that, I kind of go, gee whiz, I'm amazed I actually did that. I, yeah. <laughs> it's well, kind of yeah. a terrifying thought, actually, for a drummer, you know, yeah. use, not have your own axe, you know? Yeah, uh, no, that's totally right, I've I guess that just, I just, I had, I guess I just had the confidence. It was like, I can do this, you know, but I don't know. It would be like asking a hockey player, can you just wear somebody else's skates? You know, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I know. But it, it just seemed at the time, like we were, we were in such a role and yeah. we were, we were kind of fearless. You know, we, we yeah. like the day before was 55,000 people. Of course, nothing compared to the US festival, but it's also not like paying, you know, for 50 yeah. people in Joe's bar. Yeah. So we just kind of went in there and it's like, you know, we can conquer, you know, 
we're going with the with the we are the champions type mentality in the truck. Yeah, because the reason the reason I ask, I mean, when you when you do your own shows and you're touring with your own trucks, everything's set up exactly the way you want it. When you do those shows, like the how long was the turnover time? That that's always a an issue. The turnover time, but I, I will say the other you know sort of you know disconcerting thing is like outdoor shows are are much more difficult than indoor shows generally yeah. just because of the layout of the equipment and the and the sound on stage which can be really affected by the wind what was yeah. really different at the us festival was the scope of the stage so it was an absolutely huge stage so and if we had all our equipment sort of spaced out the way it normally is like let's say from the uh, you know, the edge of my drum riser to the downstage lip or something like that, or the distance from the edge of stage left to stage right. Um, they, they just weren't, they just weren't the same. Everything was expanded. Yeah. So there's just this feeling again, it's like putting on a pair of shoes that are your brothers and they're one size too big for you, you know, and they're sloppy on your feet. It's that kind of a feeling yeah. on stage. And um, I don't know, again, I think it comes back down to confidence. It's just, we just went, Hey, we can do this. You know, you did it too. It was, it was great. It was basically flawless. It was excellent. I watched the whole thing. And then, and then the other thing you had, you used single headed drums back then you had the four twenty ones, like the Sennheisers underneath the, the, the heads. Well, we had, we had, uh, you know, our, our sound man, uh, front of house sound mixer, Harry Witz, who was with us for years and years and years and was incredible. And, and, you know, after we finished, he started work for, with the uh, ACDC for many years. Mm. And, uh, you know, Harry just did a fantastic job. And yeah. so he had all that stuff dialed in in advance. Like he was in, in touch with uh, the sound company and saying, you know, this is the, all the specifications that I need. And uh, so there was, there were, we had really good people that, that worked with us and, and we were really lucky to have Harry. We're, we're, yeah. He was a, and is still yeah. a fantastic sound man. Yeah. Great guy. Do you still use single headed drums or did you switch? Uh, it's funny, you know, I went back and forth in my career, both directions and you know if i was playing uh now i mean absolutely would use uh double-headed drums in the studio okay. um as far as live i don't know i think it would be a game time decision i can i can see uh advantages and disadvantages to um to both scenarios and i think that when you're again a power trio it's kind of a different question than if you were playing other types of music. I know there's a lot of uh, musical styles where I would say, oh, absolutely, the drums have to be double-headed. Um, for what we were doing, uh, it was a little bit of a different scenario. And, and, and Harry as well, like we ran triggers on all the drums. So I had two sets of drums going at all times. So I had, oh, okay. I had my own drums, and then I had a triggered set of sample drums. And okay. uh, I don't... I don't know if anybody else did that. I don't, I don't know if there's other drummers that have that are doing it, you know, today or yeah. I've never seen anybody else do it or whatever. It was just something that you, that Harry dreamed up with me, um, and it was just an idea that we had, and it was kind of before samples uh, came around. We we uh, we used a Simmons uh, kit, uh, but yeah. we mixed it with a uh, a remote trigger that. Would, I guess it was like a, essentially like a multi-channel gate that would that would constantly have the uh, Simmons uh, the, the Simmons um, synthesizer mimic what I was doing, and then okay. and then Harry would blend it, and yeah. so you were always listening to cool. two sets of drums. 
Oh, cool. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I, cause I thought like everything sounds good, but you don't know what the recipe is for making that sound. And the single headed drums are easier to mix. I think live because you get less, um, you know, overtone. Yeah. But, they, uh, they work, be- they work better with the trigger system we were using. So yeah, that's why okay, I say, cool. yeah, it's yeah. hard to say like, you know, if I was, you know, if I was playing again, which I doubt it's going to happen, but if I was, it would be kind yeah. of a game time decision based on yeah, cool. whatever I was doing at the time. Yeah. And did you get credit for the longest, coolest, most intricate rock ending in rock and roll history at the Us Festival with the fight, the good fight? I think it's, I timed it. It's about a minute and a half long is the, the, <laughs> end, the outro. <laughs> it's great. I was wondering, did you chart that out or was that just all like, it couldn't have been on the fly because you were hitting shots and, and Mike's hitting the shots with you. He wasn't looking at you. So. Yeah, I, uh, that, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. The, well, the other thing that struck me is you're doing double kick when you're standing up. And I'm like, well, how can he be playing? Like you're going bu- 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 double kick while you're standing up. And I'm like, what the, how the heck did you do that? <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. And then, uh, of course, Rick speaking to his virtuosity. I mean, he's running across the stage playing flawlessly. I mean, shockingly good. And you're on the bill with, with Van, Eddie Van Halen, right? I mean, like you're right there, right in their prime. Did you get to meet those guys and, and hang out with them? We, we kind of stuck to ourselves. I mean, the, the backstage compound, like every band had their own trailer and right. there was security everywhere. And uh, the other thing was, it was so hot. It was yeah. just, uh, the, the one moment that I, I remember the best was, we were we were kind of sitting on what I'll call the porch in front of our compound or whatever. So we got stuck our head out the door and we did it right at the moment in time when uh, Judas Priest went on and uh, we hadn't gone on yet. They all had their leathers on and mm. it was like honestly 110 degrees in the shade. And we were just laughing. We were like, these guys are going to melt. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I guess you got to do your show, right? You're on. So they... That's uh, no, that's cool. Well, I, like I said, you made Canada proud that day, so we were super happy to all my, me and all my buddies were. Uh, we just thought that was the coolest thing that this Canadian rock trio was was at the US Festival because that was that was the bomb. I mean, that was the gig, right? So, yeah, I think uh, I don't know that they've ever had a a, a concert that big since uh, in California. Well, not to my knowledge. I I could be wrong, yeah. but not that I know of. Hmm. I think it was a once in a lifetime. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I really appreciate it. Just another couple quick questions, if you're okay. Just, uh, do you have anything you would do differently if you could do it again? Was there anything you would change? Oh yeah. I mean, if you could live your life twice, think how great it could be. I mean, well, uh, you can go back and correct your mistakes and, you know, uh, I made I made plenty of mistakes and, you know, the way I try to correct them now is, you know, like telling my own son, uh, telling my son, Miles, you know, and my two daughters, uh, Holly and Lauren, like, you know, here, here, let me take a chapter out of your dad's book here. Here's where I, here's where I made a mistake. And I, and I just tell them it's part of life. He's still making mistakes every single day. I'm still making mistakes. And, uh, I, I know that there'll never be a day when I, st- when I, when I don't make mistakes, but it's, what do you learn from those mistakes? You know, what do you, what do you take forward from, uh, you know, what do you do on Tuesday? That's different than you did on Monday because you made a mistake on Monday and you want to learn from it. So, yeah. I I think I, I'll answer your question this way. I don't have any regrets. Uh, 
but I can't say that if I was given a chance to go back with an eraser or like a or like a delete button on your on your uh, <laughs> on your laptop, sure, I'd go back and I'd say, hey, you know, yeah. let's change that. With this, we obviously made a mistake here. Let's fix it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that's different. Well, it was that's different than regrets. <laughs> well, no, it was cool to see you guys together and stuff too. And I, I like the old saying, you know, never let perfect be the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. And what you guys had was good, wasn't perfect, but that's they're not enemies, you know, and they can't be. And and you, the way that you guys come across, and you know, you get a bit older, and and it's it's cool, it's good. Yeah, we uh, yeah, we've got a good a good brotherhood uh, that's that's lasted. You know, uh, I mean, and yeah, we had a we had a time when we were when we were at odds, but you know, overall, over our whole lifetime, uh, right to this day, you know, we have a, a a really solid thing between the three of us, and uh, really enjoy each other's company when we're together, and and, uh, and and that's not that infrequent. Like I see Mike and Rick fairly regularly. I mean. You know, we don't live too far from each other. And, uh, you know, when we do, it's just the barrel of laughs just starts all over again. I don't think we can stay serious for more than about 10 minutes <laughs> until the old stories start. You remember when? And then it all starts. And it's like, gee whiz. Yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. When we have a Christmas dinner in a restaurant, like, nobody yeah. better sit near us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that comes across really well in the documentary too. And I really appreciate you doing it because, uh, you know, for, for the fans or for people that were familiar with the band that, that wanted to sort of peel back the layer and see what was going on, you know, cause there was lots of rumors out there about, um, you know, why the band split up or whatever. But, you know, when you see that documentary, it kind of answers a lot of questions and it, it, it and it's just a positive thing. So I, I yeah, I think that. it. I think it addresses that. I mean, it was really not that complicated. I mean, it's just like I said. It's, it, like it says in the movie, you know, you have the the episode with the with with the uh, you know producer that where he just kind of got into everybody's head in a bad way, mm-hmm. and then you know that the smartest thing we could have done, you know, if if to your to your previous question, the smartest thing that uh, course of action that we might have taken at that point was to say, hey, we need a break. And, and if we'd taken a break, just, just, just to get away from triumph for a while, we, we would have been more clear headed in terms of the path forward. Uh, yeah, right. But, uh, but, but then the touring, right. I mean, that you mentioned that and, and I had a similar experience where I came home and my son was two years old and I, I've been away for six weeks and I went to hug him and he pulled away from me mm-hmm. and it just ripped my heart out. I saw like, there's no gig in the world that's worth that. No. You know, when you talk about your mom and talk about having kids and wanting to actually be there and stuff. And I respect that because I did that as well. I raised my kids and they love me and I was here for them. And, and that meant more to me. And, and when you shared that, it meant a lot to me too. Yeah. Well, that's the way things are to this day. You know, like I, I see all three of my kids, you know, pretty much every day. And, uh, Good. you know, my, my two daughters both work uh, in different capacities at Metalworks and, uh, nice. you know, my son, one of my son-in-laws here, uh, as well. And, uh, so we're a very tight family and, uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Many thanks to Gil Moore for being part of the liner notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. More information is available at triumphmusic.com. Great website. Everything's on there. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media as well. So others can enjoy it too. Uh, we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.